0: Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Morgan Parker. Morgan is the author of the poetry collection's Magical Negro, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, and Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night. Her debut YA novel, Who Put This Song On?, will be published in fall 2019 from Delacorte Press, and her debut book of nonfiction is forthcoming from One World Random House. She is the recipient of a 2017 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship, winner of a Pushcart Prize, and a Cave Canem Graduate Fellow. She is the creator and host of Reparations Live at the Ace Hotel. With Tommy Pico, she co-curates the Poets with Attitude reading series. And with Angel Nafis, she is the other Black girl collective. Magical Negro is a stunning collection exploring the vastness of Black identity. Morgan's treatment of time is especially striking to me. The way she's able to compress and dilate it, merge events and cultural touchstones. The book scale is epic, but also intimate. As she discusses here, Morgan doesn't believe in a linear understanding of time. She cites as proof the fact that a Black person can step outside today and still feel like it's the 1950s. Magical Negro wrestles with so much so fiercely. Ancestral trauma, bodily memory, reflection, distortion, dehumanization, disregard, pain. I loved listening to Morgan discuss how she organized the collection, making the decision to situate the reader in that pain from the beginning, and to use humor to emphasize it. A lot of the book, she says, is saying, don't look away. Morgan says she often begins poems with a question. This resonated with me, as did the difficult path it can reveal for a writer. To paraphrase Morgan, you have to forget how clever you thought you were to have the idea in the first place. Now you have to be in relationship with the work, to follow its lead. A highlight of this conversation for me is our discussion of how hard it is to tell the truth, how uncomfortable and how vital the work that it yields. And one last thing before we get started. This audio is a little noisy in spots. Thanks for your patience.
1: I acknowledge that I'm being repetitive and saying the same things over and over, but that's because I don't believe that you have heard me.
0: I was researching you it was funny I also do a lot of work for apartment therapy um and then I saw your house door I like, <laughs> so I know like yeah I was really are.
1: happy about that
0: <laughs> yeah that looked great
1: I'm not there uh right now or much so that's a bummer because it's great yeah
0: yeah <laughs> but good 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 book events I'm guessing are what what are taking you away from home
1: yeah um they've been fun It's a weird chance to get to know the folks on the other side of the book, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. I wanted to start um, as kind of just an entry point with this very obvious observation that you're really great at titles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just wondered if you could start by talking about, you know, I don't even know where in the process you landed on the title Magical Negro or like if the collection kind of grew around that title, but but just sort of where that comes from and like what that says for you.
1: Um, yeah, more so than my other books. It definitely was something that was in my head earlier on, um, and before the book was finished or before it had really taken shape. Um, though, of course, I kind of left it as like a placeholder sort of thing. Um, I don't like to have a very prescriptive title going into to making a book because it can kind of change what I'm writing or it can edit how I go about making the book. So I wanted to leave that a little bit open, but in my mind I was like, that would be really, <laughs> that would just be a cool book title. Yes. And there isn't a book called that already, which is crazy to me. So, yeah, but I I kind of had a couple different directions, but all of them exploring this idea of magic, I guess, or greatness or, you know, this Black excellence sort of thing. And then I also, you know, I've spoken about how I wanted the book to be this kind of almost like ethnographic document of cataloging characters and Um, moments for me that really defined my, my sense of, of my blackness. And also, you know, just little things, little um, phrases that we use and objects that we have in our homes and things like that. really kind of the inside world of these magical otherworldly figures.
0: Yeah. I loved the, there were so many tiny things that stood out to me, as you as I went through the collection and then as I reread it, that idea of like, you know, like radios being on all night keeps coming up, gap teeth gaps keep it like these little touchstones kind of keep floating up.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more um intentional repetition in this book, I think. I I don't know, in the past I kind of shied away from too heavily repeating things. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something interesting in this book where I was like If I feel the same phrase over and over, I'm just going to use it over and over, you know, because it's part of the part of the experience I'm hoping to create in reading the book is to get a little bit of um, a peek inside of a mind like mine. So if I feel something repeated and and kind of like insistent on me, then I want the reader to also experience that. And um, part of that also is, you know, this is a book. That both honors and shames repetition. Mm-hmm. So um, honoring the things about us that have continued, and and the things that repeat in our personal relationships, and in our public personas, and in the way that we love and heal and and um, interact. Those things are repeated, and and there's a kind of like ancestral legacy aspect to it. But on the other hand, it's also the repetitive death and the language around those things. Um, the repetition of turning on the news and hearing like racially charged, whatever, you know, like just these sorts of things that, that hit you harder because they are so insistent and continuous.
0: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, especially and in, in that context, and in, in a work like this, kind of steering away from the repetition could maybe also have this effect of, of almost like some kind of like, apology or like sanitation, like, okay, well, I like, I mentioned it once, I don't want to bother you with it anymore. Mm-hmm, you know, you mm-hmm. get it.
1: Sure, sure. I mean, just the energy of this book and looking back at my others, and that's a negotiation away from like, what is my usual impulse and my usual like, writing style? versus this kind of, this is coming from somewhere else where um, there's no decorum around it. Like it really is, um, I acknowledge that I'm being repetitive and saying the same things over and over, but that's because I don't believe that you have heard me. Right. (laughs) And even though, you know, before I was more interested in saying the same things in lots of different ways and asking for things and, and telling and teaching things and, you know, society kind of doesn't clock any of that. Mm -hmm. there is this kind of frustration that that this book was built out of of the ever and ever and ever like I'm not I'm just not gonna stop saying and I talk about when I when I read to an audience spend some time repeating a line um and a lot of that is you know I, I I give a lot of readings and I I encounter a lot of different audiences and lately I have been trying to avoid the feeling of getting off stage and, and still feeling as though I haven't been heard correctly mm. or um, understood. And, you know, I often spend time looking at the crowd, seeing if they if it's working on them or not. You know, if if you know, it's funny because there's a there are all these levels of discomfort that I'm, <laughs> I push through. <laughs> um, you know, the first one is like, wow, cool. And then it's like, oh, I get it. And then it's like, oh, wait, like, you know, it's like, oh, it's keeping, it's going on. I understand it. Yeah. Right. And they're like, I understand, um, you know, intellectually, like what's happening here. And then there's a moment where they literally, I can see people shifting in their seats and they're kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. But like, when is this going to end? Will it end? You know? And I think that is the best I can do at trying to, you know, um, transfer the feelings that I have. And, and, you know, that's really the goal behind uh, literature for me.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I I love that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know definitely a thing that i want to talk about that's a little tangential from from the point right now is just like the i loved the the sort of sense of time of this book and the way that time se- and generations seems to kind of like collapse together and and but i oh, think no. that something that does make it especially one of the things that makes it especially current is kind of dealing with that sort of and i've seen this articulated in your essays as well this kind of like liberalism moment that we're in right now where like mm-hmm. you, you know, I, I think I think it's an essay I read on uh, the Poetry Foundation website where you're talking about your white friends being like, oh my God, I had no idea and you're like, great, yeah. cool. You know, like that that does feel very <laughs> like you say it much better than that, by the way. I'll link well, to that and everybody should go read it themselves. <laughs> but um but that that is such a a kind of newer thing to yes. wrestle with that really does continue to complicate and already very complicated you know, dialogue.
1: And you know, that, that is also violence, you know, like that's another kind of violence, whether or not you didn't realize it before, why are you telling me that? That's painful, you know? And I think there's a lot of grandstanding these days that are really not helpful to anyone, but the person saying them, (laughs) you know, and I think that, uh, pointing that out, at least for me has, has just been really healing and, and, to have people here that like okay I get it but like leave me out of it you know like right. if you need to discover something about the world you don't need to come to me and um tell me how shocked you are about my existence <laughs> you know um and how egotistical of us in this moment to think that everything is so specific to us in this moment especially when you know as black americans we've been so primed our entire lives by both, you know, school curriculum, or, you know, our parents and grandparents, just to understand the ways that things are a little bit unending, and and that there is an aspect of deja vu-ness, you know, Mm -hmm. always happening. Um, And also, I don't believe in time, so there's that.
0: Oh, tell me more about that. (laughs) I used to say that, and people were like,
1: people, like, I say that often, and people are like, ha ha ha. I'm like, I mean, yeah, but like, that's real you know like that is not no
0: I'm I'm earnestly with you I want to I want to know more about what you well, what you're more, you
1: know linear time is I'm very unconcerned with it I think it's too simple for how I experience the world and and how we should want to experience the world you know this insistence upon that was then this is now has always been really uncomfortable for me um I think it can be very irresponsible to look at the world in that way, like past, present, Mm -hmm. future. And especially when we're talking about race relations and especially uh, the memory inside of like one's body, you know, out into the street right now and feel that it is 1957. Like that's an experience and it has nothing to do with what year it actually is. I don't know. I somehow feel... Uh, simultaneously that I am like a slave and also myself and also in the future and also like mm-hmm. on the bus with Rosa Parks, like how do we um, connect with all of those moments in time? Understand that the present is more of a layering of all of those things.
0: Right. And I think that's something that this collection does tremendously well. This, um the kind of like micro macro sort of, or maybe that's even not quite what I mean, but like, you know, the, it is it is so viscerally personal at times, and then also so clearly couched in like a not just a larger context, but like a vastness. Like the there are a lot of major cultural figures of kind of all you know. You're going from like Zora Neale Hurston to the Jeffersons to Fred Hampton, and like all of these all of these mm-hmm. references that that made it feel like it's 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 such a crowded populated right, right. book in a really good way. How how did that happen? <laughs>
1: Um, I mean, that's something that I've always been really attracted to. You know, I even with my first book, I remember someone being like, This is like a really crazy party, <laughs> yes. um, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I think, obviously, you know, and I did that a lot in my second book. There's a lot of voices, a lot of songs, a lot of colors. Um, the way that I'm trying to shape and color um, the world in my books is full of people mm-hmm. and folks that are there both as reminders and as protection and as projections. And sometimes it's like an elegiac mention and sometimes it's like a vision board, you know, Um, sometimes it's just about marking the attitude and tone of the poem. You know, a Diana Ross poem feels very different than, you know, a Fred Hampton poem. And I, I think that, moving in and out of all of those energies and personalities is really fun for me as an artist and I I think really helps to ground the book in this kind of um, certainty of the, like you said, vastness of Blackness.
0: When you're thinking about this is like being in your head. And that is a very erudite place with a lot of things going on. But when we're, we're kind of, I mean, on my in... house
1: though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: like. exactly. <laughs> but when we're zooming into the writing, like where, where are some, what were some touchstones for you? Some pieces of inspiration from writers who inspired you, you know, with this work in particular.
1: Certain ways or um, I went to Columbia, so I, it was so dope to like see her in the, pictures of her in the anthropology building she went to Barnard. So um and I just really love the interaction of writing and also like not exactly reportage, but documentation and um filling the world with these stories in order to memorialize them really. Um that's what I love about anthropology and ethnography in general and, and she has a really great way of doing that and and getting into the nuts and bolts and the language and and the environments and all of that let's see who I mean I it's always such a hard question for me to answer because I love writers obviously and reading but usually my inspiration comes from a lot of different mediums and in particular visual art there's a lot helping me to figure out what and how I wanted to say what I was saying. But also in terms of like courage, um, I feel like Ralph Ellison was really involved. Um, Langston always. I, um, I've been spending a little bit of time with some of his more political poems and essays and um, loving that. Who else have I been reading a lot of? Well, some of the some of the artists that I've been working with, like Glenn Ligon, I I've been reading this book of of interviews and essays that he has, and that's been really, really exciting. Um, what else? I, this is always such a hard I'm like trying to envision my bookshelf. I know, and uh,
0: it's such it's such a like composting question. It's like everything just goes in and yeah.
1: Um Christina Sharp's book in the week has been really like, on my desk for, like, a solid year.
0: Oh, I don't know that.
1: Yeah, it's a really fantastic book, and uh, everything I'm saying about, like, time and um, body memories is is very, very well explored in that book, and um, it's something I've been playing with mostly in essays, but I know that all that thinking made made its way into these poems,
0: I love this. I uh, interview I read with you on the Rumpus. You talk. You talk about how you think that poetry has a freedom that that other forms maybe don't as much. And what do, what do all of those genres sort of do for you? I don't know. My experience in
1: all of the different genres. I, you know, I take it slightly different, even though I'm usually talking about the same things. And usually with an essay, I'm trying to maybe understand something poems i usually begin with a sort of question um and essays are similar to that there is a kind of guiding question but there's also like a way that i want to almost continue to iterate and reiterate in order to um make some sense which isn't to say that i'm looking for an answer but a little bit more of some sense you know often i just think something something needs a sentence or it doesn't and you know something needs the space of an essay to kind of like take its time I guess um a poem is really exciting because you can do the work of so much in such a short time you know like I read essay collections where I'm like, that is, I can see that in one specific poem, you know, and, and that's what's magic about the poems. But sometimes topics deserve just a little bit more space to breathe and to make sure that um, the audience is is following and the reader is following every little step, which I think sometimes with poems, and, and this is the beauty of them, is that those those little steps can get lost. It's a way of just expressing the same things in I guess at different levels, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because when you say that about, you know, missing the small steps, that makes perfect sense. Um, But I was thinking as you were talking also how sometimes poetry can, and, and certainly I think this happens in your work, can, for being so condensed, it's actually like more powerful how much it's suggesting. So it's like you're getting the scale, but not the maybe the granularity. Exactly. But
1: I also think that, like, I mean, this is why we, and I don't necessarily want poetry to always be read this way, but, you know, a good poem is, like, you can hear it read, you can read it once and be like, whoa, once, twice, you know, whatever. Um, But also you can spend an entire class period – taking it apart you know and I think I just often there isn't a chance to do that and then like engage with a poem in that way so I think that's where essays can really be um a good addition you know it, it's all part of the same body of of work and, and of utterances but I'm talking about like a very successful essay <laughs> whereas I think <laughs> right. there's often yeah. you know I, I've read essays from like that is she could have just written a poem, you know, like we yeah, would have gotten yeah, yeah. it. So, you know, there, there's a little bit of play there. And because I, you know, when I was writing this book, I also was working on my young adult novel. And I, I also, wish I want
0: to ask you about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Um, and I, I also was working on essays and I'm working toward a collection. So working in all those different genres. I mean, it's first of all, not advisable. No one should do it. Um, <laughs> But it was kind of helpful for me in terms of having to negotiate which which genre was correct for which um idea. So I didn't just you know, I didn't have an idea and, and think, okay, how do I have to fit this into a poem? It was more, hmm, how do I want to play with this idea? Do is it purely like within a poem? Is it just um, a line of dialogue? Is it a description? Um, And that gave me the freedom to try out all the different ways if I needed to, to arrive at the right way of saying something, which I think has just been a practice that has made me just more, just more intentional in general uh, with my writing. And that's, for me, very nice to be able to see, okay, I'm going to be writing about the same stuff. I'm still going to be having the same ideas, but like what shape will they take?
0: Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators in their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show I've always thought it was like such a sophisticated sort of level of craft and I don't necessarily think that I'm there all the time. With like I think letting the work guide you is a very sophisticated like mm. that's like a level that you reach, I feel like, you know?
1: It's really scary, you know, and yeah. I think but that's like that's when the real work happens. And you know, I was teaching a workshop last week and and just insisting that the only way to really get to um a level of of excellence and and the level of revision that is successful is to basically strip away the ego of the person who had the idea to write the thing, Mm. you know? And that's like, I mean, it's the most painful thing. It's so hard and it's terrifying, but, and I hate to, I'm like, I hate to say that to students, but I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, that's what is, that's what's going to make the work better is if you're like, I know, I thought I was so clever and smart to have this idea, but I kind of have to let that go, any desire that I have for the piece, because that's the only way that um, the work can kind of, like, grow without your, like, oppressive, you know, um, intentional linear brain trying to, you know, like, I don't know, we're always trying to, like, be very, um, polished about things. And, um, I have this idea and I will now execute that idea, but art, good art doesn't really work like that. It becomes clear that, um, the thing to listen to is not your kind of like ego, but what's actually happening and what's actually kind of crackling and exciting in the work.
0: Right. And I love that idea. I don't know if, if this was just the turn of phrase that you used, but I do love this idea of thinking about it as like kind of two distinct people. Like, Mm -hmm. well, like the other me had this idea, but like now where I'm just here, you know, kind of like selfless Mm -hmm, working, mm -hmm. working for the idea.
1: Right. It is kind of a giving yourself over to, and that's the scary part, you know, like feeling a loss of control over it. That's the really scary moment. But unless you, can do that you'll never really get to a certain place and of course you know the controlling person could come back and revisions but if you're really going to get at what you're really trying to say a lot of it happens unconsciously and um there has to be space for that to bloom
0: how does your practice reflect that what 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 does it look like
1: i start and stop things a lot okay i um I try not to have a big plan. Often when I start writing, I am trying to just like connect to things or to um, flesh out like a feeling. I know it's like so vague and hippy dippy, but I'm often like, how do I write a poem that gives me the sense of this episode of The Jeffers? You know, like what is mm, that? Mm-hmm. And also maybe I want to say something about uh, class and wealth. Like that's, that's all. And I let usually just kind of these little totems drive me through the writing of the poem. Um, whether it's like a piece of text or a visual art or like a song that's often all, you know, and whatever feeling I'm, uh, pulled towards that day, you know, whatever kind of utterance I feel is most pressing, those things that are, like, heavy on your heart come to the surface and are filtered through uh, the lens of whatever the other thing is, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, completely. And, and you know, in, in that same essay with the rumpus, or I'm sorry, the same interview uh, with the rumpus, um, I made this note to myself as I was reading that, you know, you talked about... Um, the 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 work being a form of truth telling, and I just made this note about how hard it actually is to tell the truth.
1: Oh my god, it's like, like so the, the, hard.
0: Yeah, and it just like what, good. it doesn't feel good, and so like I mean, I think there's there's so much in your work to which the adjective brave could be applied, but like that's kind of what. Resonates with me the most because I think I often get stuck at that, you know, where that ego voice Mm -hmm. is like, Whoa, don't do that. That doesn't feel good.
1: I know. It's really painful. And this book was really, really hard for me in that regard. Where I don't know, I, I feel like I was trying to have fun. I was trying to exercise craft. And a lot of other things happened as well where I was like, Fuck, that's how I feel. Like, oh no. Um, and that's like, it's just a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of pain. And if you're letting yourself go there, you'll discover some things that are like, yeah, really painful. And and then it, on top of that to be like, sure, I'll publish this. I'll read it out loud to people. Right. Um, that's really scary. And so, you know, like I said, when I'm, when I'm teaching often, that's a, the, I hate to break it to you. thing. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. like, how do you do it? And I'm like, actually it just doesn't feel good. And you know, I, it's so wonderful, but sad to see the looks on faces. Sometimes I'll be like workshopping someone's poem and I'm like, uh, isn't this one line that's tucked away? Isn't that really what you want to talk about? And they're like, "Uh, I don't want to. And that's really like, that's what it is.
0: A thing that I notice a lot in my own writing, um, is when I'm, when I'm starting to put stuff in parentheses, that's often like what I actually <laughs> want to say. I'm just kind of yeah, like yeah. trying to get away with only like barely saying it.
1: Totally, you like slip it in, or you then you like put some Beyonce on it or whatever, <laughs> you know. Like, but you can't always do that, um, and the work will thank you for it.
0: Yeah, I would love for you to talk more about that occupying such psychic emotional space, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: like this, like, I, I was really just kind of in awe of, like, how one does that day after day, and, like, what the work is then giving you, you know, like, and I would just love to hear more about, like, your relationship with, with that discomfort and those feelings through the creativity.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't,
1: One thing, I don't see my work as therapy at all. My work is the reason I need so much therapy. (laughs) You know, like, let's get that fucking straight. Um, I'm
0: always so amazed when people say that they can just, like, escape into the work. I'm like, how does that work? I would love to be able to do that.
1: I don't I mean, sometimes it is an escape in that it's turning off one consciousness and moving into another.
0: Sure, sure. But
1: what happens when both of those consciousnesses are, (laughs) like, really intense? yeah i don't i don't think of it as a way to like work on my feelings but right. for me i do think expression is um i it's hard to say because it isn't like it isn't healing but there is validation in um just saying what is true um if i'm able to instead of holding all these feelings and talking about them with my therapist and being ashamed of them and being afraid of them and it, you know, on and on, if I'm able to then make literature out of it and in particular literature that other people are like, yeah, that keeps me whole as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think so much of what I was writing about is this feeling of like dehumanization and and like disregard and, and being not heard, being misheard, on the day-to-day scale does not feel good, as I said. But, you know, in the scheme of things, I think there's something really powerful working in just saying, yeah, I have a, I have a perspective and I have a story and I have a point of view. And it is, um, it's important. I have a little bit of like a weird complex of like, I'll just follow my sword so that other people can feel allowed. <laughs> like, <to> have- <laughs> like, it's fine. I can look crazy. I can, you know, um, be unattractive to the world if it means that other folks can more easily embrace, um, the truth of themselves.
0: Right. Right. And I think like, just in general, I mean, this is certainly true for me with writing. I feel like there is this kind of, I don't know if it's because of the like the lifespan of any given project, but there is this kind of disconnect that you start to feel from the idea that anyone will actually consume it. Mm-hmm. And so you're just like, Oh yeah, I did publish that. I said that out loud and, right. and put it down on paper and then somebody bought it. Um, it can, it can kind of like, you can kind of forget that step of it. I think.
1: Oh, totally. And also because that is not the impetus ever, you know, like
0: right. that happens afterwards. Let's talk a little bit about, um, just kind of the the structure of the book because i i'm really I'm always very curious as a prose writer, you know how poets are thinking about narrative and thinking about like kind of the the beginning and end of a of a work and you know what what they're achieving there and and your structure is so interesting in part you know that we, mm-hmm. we touched on this earlier, but the whole taxonomy. Sort of style that that comes in in the middle of with the field Negro field notes and and this idea of drawing on that anthropological side, what first of all, like in a collection, are you thinking in terms of like a narrative arc
1: when I'm putting the collection together, not when I'm writing yeah. the poems
0: right, right, right.
1: um I am like obsessed with that last phase of ordering a book. I feel like everyone hates it, and I do too, but I also love it. like mm-hmm. <laughs> friends mm-hmm. always bring me their manuscripts, and they're like, okay, let's do the thing. Um, and I'm like super excited to do it. (laughs) Um, and that's because like, I mean, poems are so weird and collections can really be anything. Um, especially like as a control freak, it's the last chance to be like prescribing anything onto the, onto the (laughs) poems. And I usually pick out a couple of chapters, you know, like chapter endings or beginnings that, um can be these kind of milestones throughout throughout the book and then um, work on, you know, how do we get from A to B? Um, what are the kind of detours that are taken? Um, and then in addition to that, I'm really thinking about how poems play off of each other. Yeah. Um, if there's a series, you know, am I putting them together? Am I separating them? Um, in what order are they coming? Um, yeah. And then even down to I spend some time looking at what is the last line of this poem and the first line of the next poem like mm. just really um I get in there and it's fun to do that because the poems really transform I mean you'd be so surprised I had my last book I remember I gave the collection uh a draft of the collection to a friend and then I gave him a different draft and he was like wait was this poem in the last one mm. And I was like, yeah, but it, it, like it didn't stick out in the same way yeah. because of where it was. That's a really powerful thing um, and tool. And you know, when we're talking about this repetition, what will the echo come from, and what will be the echo? You know, mm-hmm.
0: I was especially maybe this is just because of like my writing background, but I was especially into the prose poems, mm-hmm. um, and I just like like how they appear in terms of pacing. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah I just I just wonder if there are any specific spots where you're like oh this is a great like or like you know when you put it together it kind of brings out this different element of the book like your friend saying oh was this even in here before
1: yeah yeah I mean that's the other thing it's pacing it's I mean it's poetry so the rhythm the pacing all of that is really important especially for me you know I think a lot about like I can't put all the this heavy shit together sometimes like sometimes it's just a matter of where does the, re- where does the reader need to breathe? Right. And where do I not care if they get a chance to breathe? You know, like uh, where do I need to breathe? Um, I I often say that like, I try to pack all the, like, almost like the worst of it, but that's not true mm-hmm. in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the beginning of this book is, is absolutely, full of pain like it's just it shreds me Uh um and I like can't read those poems in a row ever like that is not and I do think there was something in the making of this book about like front-loading um a lot of that pain and situating the reader there what happens if I situate the reader there instead of you know with some jokes, which right. jokes appear in this sure. book. But I think more than in my other books, I wanted to, like, torture the reader a little bit more mm-hmm. or or make them, you know, deserve it and make them earn it. And a lot of this book is don't look away like you yes. can't look away. Yeah. Um, and so I think I was really, yeah, I think I was focused a lot on that as as I went about the ordering because even there's some moments where you know it gets a little bit lighter and and in general every time you kind of feel like you're comfortable in the space or you kind of know um what the energy of the book is and you're like, okay, I'm I'm here, that's when like I like to insert something else that is um will kind of shake it up. So I, I was really focused on that for the book, you know, kind of recreating this feeling of interruption and repetition and, um, just day to day, like going to a bar and seeing, you know, a video of a black person being murdered. Like it's not all, you know, you can't just coast in one way. Um, and, and I, yeah, I think part of the reading of the book had to be like the experience of going from poem to poem. Um, it's just like another comment on, my body moving through the world.
0: Right. And it is a very physical book. I mean, there's a, there is a lot of bodily language. Um, and, you know, I, I was flipping through that for, and just for folks who haven't read it yet, just to give them a quick um, understanding. So it's it's broken into three sections. The first is Let Us Now Praise Famous Magical Negroes. So it's using kind of imagery like Gladys Knight on the <laughs> third episode of The Jeffersons, Diana Ross Finishing a Rib in Alabama, 1990s, The Strong Black Woman, which destroyed me. Um, that's not part of the title, The Strong Black Woman, is it, but, you know, which destroyed me is my own, my own commentary. Um, and then <laughs> the second section is Field Negro, Field Notes, and then Popular Negro Punchlines. And and so, yeah, this idea of—I mean, you know—even saying outright punchlines at the end, like you know, this, it's there's, yeah, it's a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, the I love jokes, and I love jokes that are sad, and the punchlines. I, I think that was like I needed to have, I needed to point at that, yeah, within the book, you know, because the, the book is so heavy, and I um. But I do think humor is so important to how these poems not only were made, but, like, what they're trying to get at. Um, Absurdity is funny. And I think there's also the idea of representation and, like, the black joke. But also, like, what is the punchline for us?
0: And I mean, humor is often, you know, is based in pain.
1: A hundred percent. Um, I might argue that always
0: <laughs> <I> <laughs> argue that always <laughs> yeah.
1: um or at least, you know, in terms of my body of work, it is, you know, like that's something that I'm playing a lot with. And also this is the first book I've ever written in section. So I kind of was mm-hmm. like, I don't even know if I'm doing this right, but I like having these little moments. And then to like, what are we building? Are we are we building this document and maybe it's a joke, you know, like what is the punchline of it all?
0: Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And it and it's interesting talking about this and, you know, I I'm flipping through the book as we're chatting and um this line that I had underlined in the very first poem, um they use us to distract us. And and mm-hmm. that kind of puts, you know, when you think about it in that context like that puts the whole structure of the book in a in a whole different light then. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well how how are we dealing, then it it seems more like how are we dealing with these reflections and and this kind of, um, into this, this sort of filtering of, of the narrative.
1: Oh Um, yeah. I mean, the whole of the book is, is really not only dealing with representation, but misrepresentation and, and who's allowed to tell what stories and why are we constantly being told stories about ourselves, (laughs) you know? Um, and not giving the space to refute them or or to correct them or anything um, that like certainly is is throughout the book and part of that is playing with things we've heard before and um, things we're familiar with. I, I think this book I wanted it to be a chance to interrupt those narratives and that idea of distraction and and making us like puppets for ourselves and and um telling us what we think like that that's very much or even you know skewing a national conversation around blackness as only about death you know like that as part of like what has been really painful for the past several years I think is this kind of insistence and and, you know the white friends being like wow I get man like They always want to talk about it. Like, I can't go get a drink. And everyone's like, whoa, so did you hear? And like that, even that is oppressive. So yeah, I don't know. Those are all the things that I was playing with and trying to figure out how to blend them and and make a kind of coherent um, form of protest, I guess.
0: Mm, I love that. Um, And and another thing that I I loved, um, the last poem in the book, Ends phenomenally, and I don't want to spoil that for anybody. But it calls back to the epigraph in a way that I love um because it's Gertrude Stein. And it's kind of like you know, it, it's this, it's this white woman translating a black experience, very clumsily to say the least. And and then the way that you kind of have like twisted that and taken it apart and put it back together. I, mm-hmm. I think that's. I, I was really, I was really into that.
1: Thank you. I, I felt kind of weird about. I mean the last uh epigraph I had for There are more beautiful things than Beyonce was Kendra Lamar. And so now <laughs> I have Gertrude <Girdr's> <laughs> I was like, this is, feels weird. And especially for a book called Magical Negro, but um oh well. <laughs> and that um actually that piece the, that piece from Three Lives, um Glenn Ligon repurposed in the same way that he did the Zoran L. Hurston line referenced in the first poem, um, he repurposed into this piece called Negro Sunshine. Yeah. And so that was always like the kind of alternate, you know, the B side of this book, this magical Negro, Negro Sunshine. The way that kind of Lygon worked with it, and I'm trying to work with it in a similar way, is pointing at what is seen about us by others and reclaiming that. I just really wanted. to I've always wanted to write a book <laughs> with, like, all these different characters. And not just the characters, but, like, these specific things about the characters. You know, this part of Angela Davis's face. Like, these iconic things. The Band-Aid on Nellie's cheek. Like, just to, like, elevate those small things. That was fun for me. And, of course, when I got to the last line, I was like, well, there's nothing else I have. I can put it after this poem. Yeah. <laughs> the last poem in the book. <laughs> like,
0: that's how that happens.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. No way really to go from there to somewhere else.
0: That's amazing. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, so the way that I like to end these conversations is by asking what creative satisfaction looks like for you right now.
1: I think um looking at something that I've made or something that i made being being validated in you know in terms of people bought a book or you know uh someone wants to have a meeting with me or whatever seeing that happen and not feeling like it's happening to someone else there's something so satisfying when i can look at something that i made and realize that i didn't compromise myself um or how i really feel um, and i didn't miss any chances to express who I really am and to be unapologetic about that.
0: Today's conversation was edited by Jenny Casas and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallestier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.